Okay, good evening. So I'm going to try to have a more regular schedule for giving talks. We'll try and do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. No promises every week, but you can expect to that sort of to be our default schedule. So I'll try to give uh, not long talks. I don't want to burden you with too much theory, but I'll give talks on specific things. Just, just various different subjects specific things but um, you know, still starting out uh, tonight I'll start with something more basic and general something that I've taught many times and end up teaching again and again because it's so fundamental it's the why of the practice So if you've read the booklet or gained basic instruction on mindfulness meditation, you know how to practice. So I can tell you that the practice of mindfulness, which is what we practice, the body, the feelings, the mind, the Dhamma, this is the objects of practice and the technique of practice being present, creating a sort of a mind and body coordination so that our mind is not out of touch with what the body is doing but also with what is happening in the physical realm and even in the mental realm so not out of touch with our feelings, with our thoughts being in touch, it's a, an idiom, it doesn't mean you actually touch something, but it's close enough, it means being close to, being connected, and we're so disconnected from our feelings, we wonder why, or we futilely try to change uh, the way we are, wondering why am I like this, and how can I change, why can't I succeed, why can't I be perfect, and so on. we're out of touch. When we get in touch, we find answers. We don't necessarily solve our problems directly, but we learn about the ways that we're creating our problems. And just learning that, seeing what you're doing wrong is so much a part of the learning experience. It's something that we're not taught very well. Uh, but we learn we learn what we're doing to ourselves. So that's what we practice. And then I say, what's it for? It's for, for seeing clearly. So vipassana is the product of practicing mindfulness. You practice mindfulness, the result is, to see, is seeing clearly. Vipassana means clearly, pasana means seeing. So you can say, okay, 
that's why I'm doing this, I'm doing this to see clearly, but it still doesn't tell you why you're doing it, right? Okay, so I can see clearly. Maybe that sounds, sounds useful, sounds good, sounds positive, encouraging, right? The point of this is encouragement. Why am I doing it? Well, if I knew why I was doing it, I would be very encouraged to do it. So is it encouraging to think, I'll be, I will seek more clearly than before? Yes, it's encouraging. But it's still not quite an ultimate goal, you know, and who was it? Uh, I think Aristotle talked about an ultimate goal or an ultimate means, an ultimate good, I think is what he said. There are things that are good for something else. Well, seeing clearly is still just good for something else. It's not good in and of itself. What's it good for? Well, first, what does it mean to see clearly? We help us understand. Again, it, it relates to being in touch. Once you're in touch with reality, you see clearly. You're not able to see things as they are when you're out of touch. If you think of all of the philosophies and theories Some of them can be quite out of touch with reality, famous theories and philosophies and ways to live your life. Some of them, you know, pop psychology or this sort of thing. Carpe diem, for example, you know. Something just because it sounds good. And maybe someone had an experience uh, that they're able to, to to connect and say, yeah, I had this experience where I did things like this. And, but none of it's generally a very, very great deal of it is not based on on seeing clearly. You know, it's not it's not based on actual insight into the way things are. When you see things the way they are, would it the effect that it has is is very specific, or can be described in very specific terms, because you'll see many things that are maybe not important. You'll remember things that happened a long time ago, and oh, it's nice, now I can remember those things I'd forgotten about. You'll have uh, the ability to plan and so on. But what's most important is, well, to, to sum up, is correcting our misunderstandings. And not just correcting our misunderstandings, but correcting our misunderstandings uh, that, uh, that lead us to suffer. And if you uh, weren't clear about you know, the, the sensation of, of, your of your stomach and so on, or what it feels like to breathe in your stomach, well, that's, that's interesting information, but your lack of knowledge about how your stomach works and, and how the diaphragm works when you breathe or how it is to walk, you know, the clarity of being able to know what it's like, what, what it feels like to move your foot, not really all that useful or interesting. So creating clear vision, so only important in regards to very specific things, and so this is what we call the three characteristics. What's crucial for us to see is that the things that we hold on to as stable, uh, predictable, constant, dependable, are, are not that. 
that our complacency about the way things are is what leads us to suffer. The stress comes from our depending on things that are not able to satisfy, are not, not dependable, not predictable, and our inability to deal with change. Our inability to stay present, how we get uh, lost in our judgments and our reactions to things, looking for things, seeking things, being disturbed by, by change. So seeing impermanence, seeing the things that we hold on to, that we cling to, are just illusions. And the reality is momentary experiences that you can't really hold on to. Uh, no, and all, second is seeing suffering, that the things that we hold on to as satisfying, as um, pleasant, are actually not true happiness. They don't make us a happier person, they don't make us more satisfied in general, we don't become content, we're left wanting more. We're always left wanting. mainly because of you know, impermanence. If something doesn't last when it's gone, we want it again. When we can't get it and we can't predictably get what we want, when catastrophe hits, when we get in an accident or lose a job or a loved one, or just when we get old and sick and die. And third, the things that we, seeing the things that we hold on to as under our control, that they're not under our control. Say those things that we think of as being me and mine. You know, this, this general, broad-based paradigm or, or outlook of self. This is me, you know, I am this, all of that stuff. The I, the self, all of that stuff, and, and mine all the possession, possessiveness, all of that is, is in the same realm of thinking that things are me and mine and under my control and all this. It has to do with self, right? The whole free will, determinism, all that thinking and thought and idea, idea, all those ideas. Basically seeing that all, that these three things, seeing seeing things as stable, seeing things as satisfying, seeing things as self. This is what, uh, what causes suffering. And this is, this is through not seeing clearly. Once you see clearly, you'll see impermanent suffering, non-self, that things are not stable, satisfying, and controllable. So what's that for? That's the, that's what we're trying to gain from the practice, but what good is it? What good is it to see these things? Well, you might say it's good, first of all, to um, to have right understanding, right? In and of itself, you think, well, that's good. I don't want to be, uh, be ignorant or misled in regards to the way things are. But the benefits of the practice are, are, are actually quite separate from 
just seeing things as they are. The point is that when you see things as they are, there are a number of benefits that come from it. And so the Buddha called these the, the um, destination of the path. He said that uh, the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, the four satipatthana, which is this practice we do of remembering, and that leads to seeing clearly, has five benefits, has five, leads to five things, leads directly to five things. So I'll just go through these. They're probably familiar to some of you. And, well, if not, they should be, and it's the kind of thing you'll hear again and again, and it's good to hear again and again, to make clear what we're doing, what we're aiming for, why we're doing what we're doing. The first is really the core of it. It's the purification, the purification of the mind. So you might say, well, even the purification of the mind doesn't yet sound like a benefit to me. What good is it to have a pure mind? Couldn't an impure mind be good? So you have to understand what it means by having a pure mind in Buddhism, or mental purity. So the, the words the Buddha used are just satanam visuddhya, which means the purification of beings. Um, but in Buddhism, purity isn't physical. It isn't about physical purity, obviously. It isn't about some uh, conceptual idea of, of what is deemed pure by someone else or what religion calls pure. I mean, it sounds very religious. But, and, and I think it is. I think it's using religious language, right? Because religious teachings, spiritual teachings often talk about this purity. And it can be a bit misleading and, and a cause for some suspicion, right? I mean, who are you to say what is pure? I don't know what I'm getting into. This sounds somewhat cultish to talk about purity and impure purity. Have you had impure thoughts and that sort of thing? Impure thoughts like lustful thoughts or, or angry, hateful, jealous, stingy, all of these. And you feel guilty and sinful about having these thoughts and so on. So it's important that we deconstruct this and understand that, first of all, the word purity is boring religious language and it can be dangerous to get too caught up in it. It's not that it's bad language, it's just it's important that we understand what exactly purity means. Purity in Buddhism is the emphasis. You know, there was a very important treatise written 1500 years ago we still uh, look very highly upon called the Visuddhimagga the path of purification and the Buddha used this terminology it's borrowing from the Buddha's own words Esamago Visuddhya this is the path of purity But it's colloquial language, it's not technical language. What does it mean to be pure technically and, and in an ultimate sense? In an ultimate sense it refers simply to suffering. You can't possibly benefit from an impure mind just because of how we define it. We define impurity as that which causes suffering. 
So having a lustful thought is only bad because it leads to suffering. Having an angry thought is not sinful in the sense you should feel guilty about them. You should feel kind of stupid about them because you're hurting yourself. And that's what it means when you see clearly. You see that the things you're clinging to are not worth clinging to. They're impermanent, they're suffering, they're not self. They don't satisfy you. They're not under your control. They're unpredictable. And the clinging to them is impure because it's just ignorant. When you're mindful, you see this about the objects of your desire, the things you desire. When you say wanting, wanting, and liking, 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 it's unsustainable. You just can't like and want those things because it's, it's ridiculous. There's nothing about them, nothing in them that is stable, satisfying, or controllable. They just come and they go. I mean, they're quite simple. It's not a complex philosophy. It's just giving up our ideas, giving up our attachment to things which is based on so many misconceptions, the idea that somehow we could find a stable, satisfying, and controllable life, and failing miserably, of course. So purification, in essence, refers to suffering. It's the idea of purifying your mind from those things that are, well, evil, but why are they evil? Because they're a cause for suffering. Not, not, not just a cause of suffering to yourself, but they cause suffering in others and, and uh, therefore are uh, a corruption of the mind. You, know, you become a worse person, you become a sort of uh, less nice or a person more inclined towards suffering. You hurt others, you hurt yourself. If you get angry at others or if you manipulate others, hurting them, you're going to end up feeling this paranoia about getting uh, revenged upon. You feel guilty if you're at all a good person, you'll, you will feel guilty and bad about hurting others. You'll remember it and you'll have to receive the fact that they remember, you'll have to receive their words and their deeds against you. Altogether bad stuff. I mean, a lot of that, that part of it is fairly self-evident. We don't have to be told that addiction is problematic or that anger is problematic or that even worry and doubt, confusion. Anxiety, restlessness, fear, whatever, boredom, depression. We don't have to be told that they're bad. And so that actually gets into the second part. I mean, they're all, these are all really related. They're just aspects of the same thing. If you talk about purity of the mind, you've really covered everything. But what good is purity of the mind for? Well, the rest, uh, the other four, make it more clear. They're much more directly why we'd want to practice. So the second one is uh, overcoming mental suffering, or not mental suffering, overcoming, uh, let's say, mental illness. The words the Buddha used are sorrow, lamentation, and despair. Sorrow and lamentation. 
So it's a kind of a suffering, but it's more involved than that. Sorrow, lamentation, even things like depression, anxiety, fear, phobia, all of these mental, what we call mental illnesses. Uh, if we're not getting into things that are more organic, like schizophrenia, for example. But even with schizophrenia, the, 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 the worst part of it is the fear and the paranoia and the confusion that it creates. And when you're able to see clearly, even hallucinations, even mental ideation, thoughts that you might have, you, a thought comes up in the mind that of doing something that you just think is horrifying and, and terrible. But seeing it clearly frees you from the reactions, frees you from the, the attachment, frees you from the feedback loop of making more out of things than they actual, actually are that snowballs into a bigger and a bigger problem. Right? When you're afraid of something, well, that's a bad thing. But it's quite different from a phobia, which comes from creating this feedback loop where you think about it and you work yourself into a frenzy or anxiety. Worrying about something or being worried is quite, quite a problem, but it's quite different from uh, having a panic attack, which comes from building up and building up until it overwhelms you. When we're mindful, we change these habits. We become less caught up in our feedback loops because we're watching them, we're watching how the mind works, how the mind does the same thing again and again. And rather than feeding it, rather than, than slipping into the narrative, we create an objective clarity about it. The whole way the brain is processing it, we, we change probably even the architecture of the brain because our whole outlook is changing. This is why we, when we talk about karma, it's very much on a momentary basis, because you're actually changing your brain, you're changing your body. You know, when you're anxious or when you're afraid, even when you're lustful or angry, you're, you're hurting the body. You're making yourself sick. So a lot of healing comes, you know, potentially can come from, from mindfulness. I mean, I, I don't, we don't need to do a study on it and get data on it, because it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Get angry and, and ask yourself if you're hurting your body or not. Be angry all the time and ask yourself what it's doing to your body. Be afraid all the time and ask if you can't feel the tension and what that's doing to your body. But even deeper, what it's doing to the brain. On a very basic level, every time we get anxious or angry or worried or even when we're craving, of course, what addiction does to the brain, flooding it with all these chemicals that we then begin to crave and need more of. And that taxing, the taxing of the addiction cycle, whereby we need more of the same chemical to get the same high and, and, and therefore need more and more extremes of pleasure and we fall into real and true addiction. So mindfulness changes that. Just the fact that you're looking at things in a new way is very powerful. If you want to talk from a, from a physical point of view, a medical doctor, uh, why, like meditation isn't magic. 
and why it takes long, why it takes time, why you, you sometimes feel discouraged why, when after a few days you're, you're seeing all sorts of bad things that you, you just can't seem to practice properly. Because meditation isn't doing something, anything special. It's retraining your mind. It's, it's creating a new way of existing, a new, uh, a new path. We talk about this being a path. Like if a person eats lots of unhealthy food, they get sick in the body. They're, they're on a path that changes the body. They can get high cholesterol and diabetes and, and all sorts of problems. But it doesn't come from magic. It comes because of the path that they're on. If a person is likewise full of mental problems, they can end up with mental illness. And so this does away with that. Well, the Buddha didn't, he didn't use the word mental illness here. As I said, he says, sorrow and lamentation. So it also refers to things like mourning and depression is a very close one, I think. We get depressed when we lose, maybe you lose your job or you're heavily in debt, this sort of thing. I mean, those are not good things, losing your job and being in debt and losing a loved one. And and just feeling like a failure in life and so on. It's not good things. But when you get depressed about it, when you when you create this mental reactivity, rea mental reaction to it, you know, then you create a real problem. And it affects you. It creates this deeper and deeper rut that we sink into. So meditation, we pull ourselves out of it. Not instantly, but simply by looking at things in a new way. So when you say to yourself, stepping right, stepping left, it seems so banal, like what the heck is this doing that I'm just focusing on my foot? We're trying to teach ourselves a pure way of looking at things. So it, you criticize it as you will, you can't say that it's not pure to just say stepping right, stepping left. Where, where can be the possible evil or impurity there? We talk about the many ways you can brainwash yourself, or someone can brainwash you, or you can be brainwashed. Which means, you know, changing your mind and creating a sort of a, a simpler way of looking at things. You can't argue with the idea that watching your stomach and saying rising, falling is, is pure. And so it re changes you. The third and the fourth one, the third... The third benefit is the overcoming of physical suffering. Now meditation doesn't get rid of physical suffering. Or it doesn't eradicate it. It does actually get rid of a lot of physical suffering. Now I can't. Uh, but it does. There's no question that it does. A big one that it gets rid of is tension in the body. As I said, this is the, the physical results. If you're anxious all the time, or if, you're, if you have phobias or that sort of thing, you do a real number on your body. Even anger will give you headaches, right? And then you get angry about the headaches, like it becomes a feedback loop. I don't know what a migraine headache really is, but I would be interested to learn, to, to study someone who had migraine headaches, how they meditate and what happens when they are successful in practicing mindfulness. 
it doesn't help you get a, get rid of all pain. Um, it does get rid of many pains, like you know, there's a tension, but what it really does is help you overcome pain and learn to see pain as just a feeling. Like if you ask yourself, what is the difference between pain and pleasure? Is there a difference really? I mean, you can talk about the characteristics of it, but what I mean by this question is in terms of being good and bad. Why is pain bad? Why is pleasure good? I mean, I'm, I don't mean to say that uh, there are not some various obvious answers to that question, but deep down, why do we dislike pain? Why do we like pleasure? And it, it's not even so much that we should, um, it should be the other way around or something, but what we come to see is that liking pleasure and disliking pain uh, brings us no good on either side. And liking the pleasure, pleasure leads to addiction. There's no question, it's a direct result. You can't be satisfied if you're looking for happiness in something outside of yourself, in something, in anything, inside or outside. And disliking pain, of course, makes it worse. It, it creates a feedback loop whereby you, you're more and more averse to the, to the phenomenon. The next time you feel the pain, you dislike it more. So meditation helps us to overcome this, and it really does. This isn't theory. I can, you know, what I'm talking is just words. But if you really grasp the practice and understand it clearly, and by extension come to understand pain and so on clearly, physical suffering uh, loses its power over you becomes just another experience. The real reason why pain is a problem is what we've build up, built up again and again and constantly building up so that the smallest bit of pain, we have this knee-jerk reflex reaction because we've built up a disliking of it so much. Mental suffering. So that's the, the, the fourth uh, So the third and the fourth is physical and mental suffering. Not they're together. Yeah. There, so the real the real one is mental suffering. What we're really trying to free ourselves from, and what you can be free from in this very life, is mental suffering. And they're tied together. So when you feel pain in the body, normally you also feel pain in the mind, and that's what creates this aversion and and becomes a feedback loop whereby become more and more averse to the pain. But you can free yourself from that because that's how the, that's a, a habit of the mind. And you can create a new habit when you say to yourself, pain, pain. You're creating this new habit, a new way of looking at things. It's not magic where just saying pain makes it go away, but it reinforces a new way of looking at things and it evokes states of objectivity where you just see the pain as pain. So that's the one we can really be free from, is mental suffering. And the fourth benefit is getting on the right path, finding the right path. So a description of why we practice to see clearly is to get on the right path, right? I mean, that, that should be a fairly obvious one, even outside of all this talk about suffering and purity and so on. 
the idea of being, just the, the abstract idea of being on the right path is something I think quite, um, quite desirable or, or attractive to anyone looking for a spiritual path, a spiritual practice. What do I do with my life? Right? And so there are many paths and there are many things that we put on our plate as far as what's important my employment, my family life, my romantic life, uh, wealth, health, yeah, pleasure, hobbies, all of the things that become a part of our path. We have a very full plate of all these things. But none of that, of course, is what we mean by path. And so, uh, what we understand about the path that comes from meditation isn't really very much about us or about our personality or like what we do. It's about how we do it. So you can be in whatever employment, you can be married, you can have children and still practice, still be on the path because the path is how you do things. The path is that which frees you from suffering. That's what which frees you from defilement. The path is that which sees clearly. Right? What is it? What good is it to see clearly? Because if you see clearly, you don't need anything else. All this other stuff that we talk about as being on our plate and, and a part of our path, you know, we realize it's none of it necessary. And that's important. It's important that we put that all, we, we throw it all aside, we throw it all away. Not that we stop doing it, but we take it off, off this, this plate or off of, take it out of the basket of what's important. It's very important to understand. I mean, it, it goes very deep. So what are some of them? Well, you know, killing and stealing and all that, that has to go very quickly. But more important to the useless things like money or wealth, wealth anyway, you know, collecting wealth, possessions obviously, having a nice car, a big house and fancy clothes, things like romance, um, even friendship. But by friendship here I mean like having lots of friends and social life, social, social life, society politics even, we engage with all these things and in fact they're all important to engage in just because that's uh, sort of our duty, it's a sort of part of living life as a layperson. As a monk I have duties, you know, monastic duties and I have a monastic community I have to engage with. But it's not what's important, I mean, it's not what's essential and all of those things turn out right, turn out for the best when you're mindful. I mean, they, so many good things come, so many good changes come. But ultimately, they're none of them important. Health is not ultimately important. Again, you should strive to be healthy, but it's not on this, in this essence of what's essential. And because you will get sick and die, we all will. Even eating food, you know, being uh, clothed, clothed, right? 
even being, even life. You know, if we cling to life, we realize that it only leads to more suffering. If we're afraid of death. Ultimately, the only thing that's important is seeing clearly, right? Because by extension, everything else fixes itself, writes itself. You can't do the wrong thing if you see clearly, right? That's the point. So the right path is very simple. Follow that and let the rest of it fall where it may. You know? Use it to work out the rest of your life. All these questions people have, problems they have. Really, the answer comes from, I mean, and it shouldn't be a cause, a cause for doubt. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be questionable whether this is true or not, because it's quite simply, when you see clearly, you don't make mistakes. So the real question is, does this practice lead you to see clearly, and does it lead you to see clearly in what's most important? Because if it does, this is what it leads to, and on the right path. And the fifth and final destination is Nibbana, seeing Nibbana clearly. So how we describe Nibbana, Nirvana, it's not a place or a, a thing you go to, it's something you see for yourself, Satchikirya. Sa, I think this comes from seeing with your own eyes, is the literal translation, making clear with your own eyes. But it means making uh, making evident to yourself. And the, the reason for the use of that, the, the satchikirya, it's a word that is distinct from knowing something, because knowing can be intellectual, can be theoretical, can be analytical. But seeing for yourself, and that doesn't mean with the eyes, obviously, just like vipassana doesn't mean seeing with the eyes. Seeing Nibbana for yourself means, well, means experiencing freedom from suffering, a cessation of suffering, where all, all of the fire and, and all of the chaos of samsara disappears. There's no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no feeling and thinking. And theoretically that might not even sound very enticing. But practically and, and in an ultimate sense, it's the most important thing. It's the most important thing of all. Because involved with freedom from suffering is the perfect clarity of vision. The only way you can have an experience of Nibbana is if you let go of everything. Or if you, not everything, but perfectly let go or completely let go, right? That's how I would describe what happens in meditation. You're, you're letting go. As you see more clearly, you're holding on less tightly, let's say. So you're relaxing your grip. You still don't want to fall. So there's still things you're holding on to. No, if I don't have this, I won't be happy. I need this to make me happy. I have to fight against that or I won't be happy. Still holding on, but you relax that as you see more clearly. And once you see perfectly clearly, perfectly clearly, you let go. So it's not even so much what it's like to be in Nibbana or Nirvana. It's the experience. It's the fact that you did it. You let go. 
just like a, a if you're uh, parachuting or something, you know, clinging to the plane, you don't want to jump out. When you finally do it, the accomplishment, I mean, it's falling out of a plane is not uh, not the same as nibbana, but it's the same idea. We're clinging and holding on, and when you finally let go. Like I've said before, it's like we're holding on to the side of a cliff because we we're afraid of falling. But we don't realize we're like a bird. And if we let go, we can fly. And without letting go, we'll never fly. That's really what it's like. And eventually, when you see clearly, you realize, I don't have to hold on. And you let go. When you let go, you're free. When you're free, you know you're free. Nothing left to do after that. So, talks are, are for many different things. They're for information, they're for a sense of goodness and reassurance, and they're also for encouragement, uh, for creating energy and, and uh, determination. They're also just a good thing, you know, just listening to the Dhamma. What I'm teaching is not something I came up with trying to put it in whatever words I know that I understand, so it comes out sounding a lot like like me talking, but the actual teaching is something very old and very special and very pure. So just listening is a great thing. Even if we don't get anything out of it, like maybe don't understand it, the fact that we appreciate it and, and even just being here. You don't have to try too hard to understand the Dhamma talk. This one was simple, right? But even if it's a hard to understand concept. You don't have to try too hard. Just being here and being in the presence of the Dhamma, even just doing meditation, even if you're not very good at it. Suppose someone came and didn't work very hard or succeed very hard, but they felt good about that they were doing meditation. There's so much good just there. Obviously we hope for more and we... I mean... It's not very hard to go further than that, where you actually get something out of it and do come to see clearly. So I hope that's where you're all headed. I don't hope. I can see that's where you're all headed, and I appreciate that you're all headed there. I appreciate your continued practice, and I'm here to help. So Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, I'll try to keep giving more Dhamma, just little bits, this and that. I'll try to come up with a whole bunch of different talks to give. I used to do this as well, so I'll get back into it. Some of it you may have heard before, but that's also good. It's not information. Information is never the most important thing you get from a talk, but direction, answers, and clarity. And sometimes that comes from hearing the same thing again and again. It's the actual practical application of the knowledge that's important. So, there you go, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>